Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. As you've heard already, if you're new, welcome. It's so good that you're with us to worship. We are in a series walking through the book of 2 Corinthians, a letter that Paul writes to a church in the Greek province of Corinth. And as I was reading this week and kind of prepping and studying and praying, there's the themes that Paul is wrestling with in this letter reminded me of themes that another, what I think would be fair to say, prophet of the church said to the community of faith, but just 2,000 years later. It reminded me specifically of Martin Luther King Jr.'s words that came right at the end of the Montgomery boycott. The Montgomery Improvement Association, they gathered together for uh, like a, a week-long training on nonviolence and social activism. And King addressed the crowd near the end of it, and he said this thing that has always stuck with me. He said, quote, We have before us the glorious opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of our civilization. There is a still voice crying out in terms that echo across the generation, saying, quote, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for those that despise you that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. The end of this is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. 
end quote. King understood his work and the work of the civil rights and the work of so many organic communities and small churches and people, not as a political agenda, though that was important, not as like a city agenda, though that was important, but that the fundamental, overarching, underwriting mission of everything they did was the formation of a beloved community. The people united by something so deep that it overcame political, ideological, civil boundaries. That it formed a new kind of people, radically disruptive to the world around them, a beloved community. And in a similar way, Paul is inviting the church at Corinth into a different vision of themselves, a different kind of peoplehood. Not just a social club, not just another uh, group within Corinth, not just a different kind of Corinthian people who participate in the state in the same way and make it better, though that would happen. Paul is inviting this church in Corinth to see themselves so differently than other peoples have seen themselves, to see themselves as the church people formed by Jesus, united around the cross, renewed by the Holy Spirit, and formed into a beloved community. A deep community. And Paul has been doing this in different ways throughout this letter. Sometimes he does it through preaching a huge gospel story and saying, like, here's what's happening in the world, and the kingdom is coming, and it looks like this, and it challenges your presumptions and your assumptions and the way that you've lived. And sometimes he does it through more personal and heartfelt pleas. And as we come to chapter 7, that is what Paul does. He gets very personal with the church at Corinth. And in this moment, we were joking about it earlier today, but it feels less like a theological treatise and more like Paul is like writing a long DM that he's about to send to somebody. He's just like pleading and heartfelt and and emotional and it's kind of erratic and it's kind of all over the place and it is very human. It's very human as Paul tries to express his love and concern for the church. And in this humanness, and in this personalness, and in this long, ancient DM that Paul is sending to the church at Corinth, we get to see an example of a person who is trying to do what they've just spent six chapters telling us about. A person who, in the midst of suffering, and difficulty, and hardship, and heartbreak, is trying to see his own life as interconnected to the community, as deeply bound to them because of the work of Christ. And he's trying to reorient how he lives and how he engages and how he participates in that community because of what Christ has done despite the pain and the hardship and the difficulty. And as we see it in Paul, we get for ourselves an example of what it can look like for us to participate. Now, if you remember through some of the different weeks that we've been here, Paul's relationship with Corinth has been fraught. He says this in chapter 7, verse 2. He says, Would you make room for us in your heart? We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. Now, the only reason that you say that to somebody is because you are being accused of those things, of having wronged someone, of having corrupted someone, of having exploited someone. And that's the story that Paul is having to combat. He's been writing this letter because the church at Corinth has rejected his authority. They've rejected the way he kind of embodies 
his authority with them. They're choosing other kinds of apostles and other kinds of leaders in Corinth who look a certain way and saying that Paul doesn't measure up to those things. And so they're rejecting him and his message. So Paul had to be frank, sometimes harsh and sometimes bold with the church. And yet, right after that moment in verse 2 where he says, we have exploited no one, he says this. In verse 3, I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness, and yet I take pride in you. I've had to be harsh with you, and I've had to be bold with you, and I've had to criticize you and defend my honor, and yet I would die with you, and I have pride in you. And I'm greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. What? I've had to fight you, and I've had to defend myself, and yet my joy knows no bounds with you. The only way, the only way that makes any sense is that Paul believes he has been joined to these people. Paul believes that in Christ he is bound to these people, that in Christ he is united to these people, formed into a a community that is bigger than a social club, bigger than a volunteer organization, but a beloved community, a new kingdom. Paul sees himself linked. And in this moment, we get to see how the kingdom challenges so many of the assumptions that we bring. In this, it challenges Paul's individuality and reveals that he is one with a people. And we get to see how it plays out right here in this moment with Paul. And in one chief action that Paul takes with these people, and it's very simple, it's this, he stays with them. Paul said to defend himself, he said to fight him, them, he said to argue for his own authority, they've rejected him and accused them, and yet he stays with them. He commits himself to the community. He gives his life to them despite the pain they've caused. He embeds with them, puts down roots, and refuses to give up on them. He refuses to give up on these people because he sees himself linked to them. The uh, Benedictine monks would sometimes refer to this as the vow of stability. That if you're going to be a Benedictine, I just learned this today, if you're going to be a Benedictine, then you would take a vow of stability, which meant that you would stay connected to a people and a place. And though it might get difficult, and though it might get hard, and though it might look like there's some greener pastures in some other field, this vow of stability rooted you in a place and a people. I like the way that Thomas Merton says it. He says this, quote, By making a vow of stability the monk renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect monastery. This implies a deep act of faith. The recognition that it does not much matter where we are or whom we are with. End quote. This requires a deep act of faith that implies, that recognizes that it does not matter where we are or whom we are with. Because God is at work where we are. Now this is so hard for our culture. It's so hard for us today. Because our world is built to destabilize. 
to uproot, to send us, to, 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 to send us into new locations. And it encourages us moving and leaving and heading out in all different kinds of ways. It is normal to move for a job. We actually don't even think about it. We actually think it's wise and good to say like, oh, I got a job opportunity, I'm going to leave. Because money or job or climbing the ladder is actually seen as the ultimate goal. And so I'll leave. It's normal to move because you don't like a space. Like I just think there's greener pasture somewhere else. I just think there's something over there for me to experience. And so it's normal to leave. And it's normal and even encouraged to end relationships with people. Because they drain us or because we call them unhealthy and toxic. Now I'm not talking about relationships that are abusive or relationships that is power over, but normal relationships that start to become a strain, we are encouraged to leave. And it's even normal to leave churches that we dislike or disagree with. And maybe there's a time and a place for each of those where God might call us and invite us to leave. But when it comes to our regular everyday life, it's very rare to hear someone saying, stay. Put down roots. Be stable. And that makes sense from the story that we hear from culture, the story that we imbibe from the world around us that says that advancement comes with leaving or adventure comes with leaving. But if we are Christians and we hold to the story of Jesus, well then, like we talked about last week and Heather introduced the week before, the cross has to shape our vocation and we believe that God is at work around us. And that fundamentally reorients the way that we live in the world, the cross is our vocation and God is at work around us, then our vision, our imagination, like Paul's in the church of Corinth, has to change. That the way of the cross, if we start there, is to forgive 70 times 7 until no end. And Jesus tells us that in Matthew 18, which comes in the context of people gathering together. So he's talking about the gathering of the church. You just keep forgiving. And if you look at the life of Jesus, this is what Jesus does. He comes to a people, absorbs their hostility into himself until there is nothing left for them to dish out on them, until all the weapons and hate and hostility have been emptied onto the person of Christ. And then what does he do? He stays. And so we see Paul do in Corinth. He takes a beating from this church, and at the end of it, when they've exhausted themselves in attacking them, He's still there. And the only way that makes any sense is if we see our life and our vocation through the lens of the cross and believe that God is at work around us. Otherwise, there's no story, there's no power to like navigate that difficulty or root us in that context. If we don't believe in the power of the cross, then why would we stay and absorb and make space? Because believing in the power of the cross leads to where Paul goes next in this passage. If you look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, and I'm actually going to read it to you from the message because I really like the way Peterson says it. He says this, Now I'm glad, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from God. The result was all gain, no loss. The way of the cross jars people into seeing truth. 
Brian Zahn, the writer, says that it is like shock therapy to a world that's addicted to solving its problems through violence. And you could say the same thing. It's addicted to solving its problems through leaving or addicted to solving its problems through getting up and bailing or moving on to some other place. It is shock therapy to a culture that always says me first and takes the easy way out. It shocks us because as we exhaust ourselves in God, God is still there. And as the church at Corinth exhausts themselves in Paul, Paul is still there. And you've probably seen this in your own relationships. That there are certain people that as much as you may want to cut out of your life, and there are certain people that as much as you may want to like say, like, I'm going to end this relationship, like for some reason, maybe because God's doing something in the middle of you or in them, you just can't. You can't bail on. No matter how much they take, no matter how much they cost, you can't give up on I have a friend in my own life that's like that. And for years, we've been debating, like, what do we do? Do we bail? Do we leave? Is it unhealthy? How do you set boundaries? But there's always been this thing in us that's like, no, we can't, we can't give up. We love this person. We can't give up. And it's not because we're awesome. We just, like, we just feel like we can't end that relationship. And the other day, there's a true story. The other day, that person was talking to my wife. And they were, like, sitting out. They, were, they thought they were alone and isolated. They were talking. And my wife told me the story later that that person was recounting our history of relationship. And it was like, there's no, matter, there's no one in my life that absorbs so much as Johnny. There's no one who so quickly says I'm sorry. There's no one who so quickly stays with me no matter what I bring. And it was like that moment where they were jarred into recognizing what this relationship does for them. Into how connected and stable and safe the relationship had become. And that's like a very tiny example of what we see God doing and what we see Paul doing for the church. It jars us into seeing that God is still with us. And Paul says specifically that this stability, this commitment that God has to be with us and this commitment that Paul has to be with the church, that's what leads to godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. He makes a separation between the two. He says that worldly sorrow leads to death. Why? Because it leaves you alone and isolated and shamed. You experience this jarring maybe that happens because you have a revelation or because someone takes something and you, and you start to see clearly the pain that you have caused, but then you're alone. There's no one with you. There's no one in it with you. There's no stability. There's no commitment. There's no community. And so what is left for you to do except feel the shame and alienation. That's worldly sorrow. It leads to death. But godly sorrow comes within the context of stable community and a stable God. Like a child that knows her family supports her, that her family loves her, is actually safe with her that everyone in that family actually desires restoration, not judgment, and that repentance actually leads to joy. Well, that creates a fundamentally different environment for which to be jarred by the cross and to change. It creates a stable and safe environment to repent. What does it do and what does it produce? Well, this is what Paul says next. He says, see what it produces? See what godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. 
This is the description of life-giving repentance. It leads to wholeness, to restoration in community, and to a commitment to change and to justice. This is a picture of a flourishing life, not a life of shame or isolation or alienation. Eagerness, readiness to see justice done. What? Longing. That's a picture of healing. And that only happens in the context of stability. When you know that the people you've hurt are for you and will not give up on you. When you know that the God that you love is with you and will not give up on you. Well, then it leads to healing and to restoration. I was at a, I got invited to do a training um, last Tuesday. This Tuesday? I don't know. Time's a flat circle. I got invited to do a training recently on race and small businesses. Like, how do we as small businesses engage in racial injustice in our city? And we were doing a large Q&A, like in a circle. And one of the things that was so consistent amongst, like, young white employees of this business was how fear had stopped them from engaging in change, or fear had stopped them from asking questions, or fear had stopped them from uh, figuring out what it looked like for them to engage in justice. And I thought that was such a profound, though very true and very common sentiment, that fear stops us from engaging in any of the things that are required for change. Fear because we're worried about shame, or fear that we're worried that people will give up on us, or fear that we'll look dumb, or fear that we will be isolated and alone. But like, what would it look like in the church if fear was dispelled by the stability and commitment of the community. If there was nothing to fear because you knew that people were for you and they were with you, that they would always meet you at the table, they would always provide space for you, and no matter how much you thrashed, and no matter how much pain you caused, it was always going to be absorbed into a people who see their vocation defined by the cross, the God who absorbs all hostility into himself so that we have space to do it too. What if that was the defining feature of the community? It would be a safe place to repent. And it would lead to godly sorrow that produces what longing and what eagerness and what desire for justice. What if we were a church that through stability dispelled fear? This is why Paul is writing this letter. This is what he says in verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on the account of the one who did wrong, nor on account of the injured party. Isn't that fascinating? Paul's like, I didn't write to you because of this person who did wrong or because of the injured party. That's actually not my concern. And you can see it through the letter. Like, there's obviously something that's motivating the letter, but it's kind of obscure what it is. He's like, I didn't write to you because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was injured. Though those are important. I wrote to you rather that before God you could see for yourself how devoted to us you are. That's, like, that's a strange phrase. And this week, our staff, we did Lectio, text dwelling on this text. And Haley read it in the, in the message. And I think it was actually a really helpful way to see it. It says this in the message. That you would realize and act upon the deep, deep ties between us before God. 
I wrote this letter to you, not because of the person who was wrong, not because of the one who did the wronging, but that you would realize and act upon the deep, deep ties between us before God. So that you would know that we are bound together. United deeper than family, deeper than citizenship. That we have been formed into a people that calls us into a deep stability with and for one another because of Jesus. I wrote you this letter that you would reimagine the bonds between us and that you would act on them. That you would see how strong they are, how deep they are, and how interconnected they are, and that you would act upon them. Because it is hard for us to imagine how bound we are. It was hard for them to imagine it, and now add 2,000 years of Western individualizing to it, and imagine how hard it is for us to see that we are bound to one another. I wrote you this letter that you would know that you are bound to one another. Monsieur, and the same thing is true of us today, that this has been given to us that we would know that we are bound to one another. What if we saw ourselves that way? What if personal preference came second to the community? What if job advancement or even experience or adventure came second to the community, to the people that we are bound with? What if our politics and our country and our ideology came second to the people that we are bound with? What if there was a deeper kind of loyalty that came from Christ that governed, navigated, and moved us? What kind of people would we be then? Oh, we'd be the beloved community. A church that witnesses to another reality in the midst of this one. So, Missio, I only have one question this week. Will you be stable? Will you be a stable people? Will you commit to the people and place that you're in? That doesn't mean that God won't call you elsewhere. We see that happening in Paul. God is, calls Paul to other places. But can you just ask yourself a really good question? Is it actually God? And Paul always discerns that with who? Oh, other people. He doesn't get his preferences to dictate that decision. Is God actually calling you somewhere or is it just preference? It's okay to name that. Just name it. And ask yourself, will you be stable? Will you believe a different story about where God is at work, about who you're bound to, and what it looks like to be the church? It's hard to imagine because it emerges from a different story than the one that we often tell. But it's the story of the gospel, that our God is at work in the world around us, calling us to join through picking up our cross and following Christ into this space. It's the story that we proclaim when we come to the table. And every week, we invite the church to the table. Even despite this distance from COVID-19, we invite you to the table to take the bread and the cup. Elements of rootedness and connection, you're at the table with others to declare a different story that God is at work in that moment, right around you, not some distant place, right there. And to declare as you break the bread, and you take the cup, that the vocation of the cross makes space for you 
And now through you can make space for others. So we can be a stable community. Missy, let's pray. God, as always, we thank you that you're with us. But today as we tell your story and as we read your word and as we sing your songs and as we come to the table that you are with us. And that's true despite the distance and despite COVID-19 and despite being in other homes and all dispersed around this city. You are with us. But God, we also thank you that you are around us. Today, as we talk about staying and being stable and living through the vocation of the cross, would we pay attention to where you are? Would we see in new ways the way that you are around us and calling us to join you? Would we gain that kind of vision for the world? God, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Miss you, I'm going to take communion and invite you to do it with me.